back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch. I am pleased to be joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm Andy. Glad to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, Gina Carano has been canceled. Also, Gina Carano has been uncanceled. Uh, the MMA star turned Disney star turned social media lightning rod has had a very weird week, to say the least. Carano, who played Cara Dune on Disney Plus's hit show The Mandalorian, has come under fire in recent months. Uh, first for making fun of people putting pronouns in their bios, then by questioning the efficacy of masks, then there was some anti-vax stuff, and then finally, uh, the thing that got her the boot altogether were some tweets that were considered by some to be anti-Semitic. I would argue that one of those tweets was not anti-Semitic. She compared the plight of conservatives to the plight of Jews during the Holocaust. Stupid, but not anti-Semitic. Uh, and one that almost certainly is anti-Semitic, uh, which it was a it's a cartoon that is basically an image out of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, with a bunch of old Jews oppressing hunched minorities crushed by a game of Monopoly. Um, uh, Disney got tired of having to field questions from outraged media outlets and publicly separated from Carano. That was the cancellation, which led swiftly to her being scooped up by Ben Shapiro for his nascent production slash distribution company. That was the uncancellation. Uh, there are many ins and outs and what have yous about this whole thing, uh, including a slightly personal one on this show's end. Dallas Sanye, previously of Cinestate and currently of Bonfire Legend, is going to be producing Carano's film for Shapiro. Uh, and as longtime listeners will remember, this podcast originated as a project of Cinestate sublabel Rebeller. So full disclosure and grain of salt and all that uh, for everything that follows. I just wanted to get that out there. Um, there are a lot of things to discuss here. One angle in particular that I'm paying attention to is the kind of sotto voce effort to downplay the excitement critics, critics had for Carano after her debut in Haywire, the Steven Soderbergh uh, martial arts slash spy thriller movie. Um, there's going to be a pretty extensive paper trail to follow here if critics decide to go the, ah, she's a talentless hack anyway, who cares if she makes bad right-wing movies? Um, Especially since she's going to be making movies produced by a guy who has experience with making critically acclaimed films. Flicks like Bone Tomahawk and Brawl in Cell Block 99. Um, the real question here, though, and this is the one that everyone cares about, is the simplest. Alyssa, was Carano fired by Disney and dropped by her talent agency an important piece of this that, that I didn't mention, um, and turned into a pariah simply because she strayed from liberal orthodoxies on issues of gender identity and COVID precautions? And this is a question that's legitimately actually hard to answer because for all that um, Lucasfilm made clear that she would not be coming back to The Mandalorian in the wake of this latest comparison, The Hollywood Reporter suggests that she was actually cut from a spinoff show um, that Lucasfilm was going to be announcing in December. Um, and so she clearly has been kind of on the way out for a while. They clearly have not been happy with her for a little bit. Um, and in fact, I think that, you know, it's a good example of why a lot of these Hollywood blowups are not necessarily super useful test cases. Um, you know, firing someone who is a you know, major supporting character on a big hit show is generally, especially if it's over social media posts, is generally going to be something that takes time. Um, and yes, there may be sort of a tipping point. THR quoted some insider that said that Lucasfilm had been sort of looking for an excuse forever. And maybe this was the straw that broke the camel's back. But um, it's it's legitimately hard to say that it was like one thing. Um, I suspect it was probably more that Carano was someone who generally spent a lot of time online, was a conservative, 
was not particularly thoughtful or careful about the stuff that she was saying on the internet and thus became a kind of pain and drag for a company that is both famously averse to controversy um, and that, you know, is relying on The Mandalorian along with a couple of other shows to bolster a new business model. So I think that this is a political story. I think it's a business story. Uh, and I think it's a story about the sort of unique culture of Disney and Lucasfilm um, and trying to say that it is a sort of clear statement of any one of those things is going to end up discounting some other factor there. Peter, what do you think? I mean, you know, just to start with, a movie studio doesn't have to work with anyone. They can fire anyone. Um, they, they can work with the people they want to work with, and they have a right to to pick which performers, which directors, which writers they want to be on their payroll. And they have a right to stop working with people who they don't want to work with anymore, just as actors have a right to quit shows when they don't want to work with the studio. Um, right. This is this is a two way street. Now, they're bound by contracts and those and, you know, uh, they they do have those limitations. But but studios don't have any kind of any really sort of hard obligation to work with someone uh, just because they've been working with them or, or just or, or for whatever reason. Um, I do think the contract issue sort of is uh, is worth raising. There are typically in Hollywood contracts, it obviously varies project to project, performer to performer, um, but they're typically in sort of high profile contracts, clauses that ta that sort of uh, that, that provide guidelines um, for what actors, uh, directors, writers are allowed to or even supposed to say uh, in public. And some of those, often that's just sort of guidelines about the work itself, right? Non-disparagement clauses. You can't say, man, that movie I was in was real bad at, on the press tour. Not allowed to do that. But, you know, then there are these morals clauses and other stuff that go into this. And I guess one thing that I just wonder coming out of this is if this is going to be an issue, why are studios not just saying in their contracts, you can't do stuff online, like get off Twitter. What you can say on Twitter is, here's my new thing. Right. Yeah. Here's my trailer. But, That's it. And like, just tell well, people like they control well, the so much of of these people, uh, of these performers, you know, sort of public personas anyway. And they're basically basically saying anytime you do something in public, you're representing us. You got to act that way. Why not just say if this is going to be an issue, you you guys can't be on Twitter having like political arguments all the time um yeah but you know why they can't do that is because uh everybody would get outraged that they're they're silencing you know the biggest uh backers of the democratic party uh sure. in in the country i mean like that yeah. that's that that's part of it but also because people uh, like studios actually use social media engagements as a metric of determining whether and or not a film is getting the sort of push it needs right the, whether it's getting the sort of advertising push that it needs and if you say to these people who have these massive social media followings you can't use social media in a way that got you the social media following you're neutering that whole yeah. uh, branch of of advertising and kind I of do, a native advertising and i do think i mean there is sort of an interesting challenge here jonathan chait has written a couple of pieces about this um which i don't entirely agree with but i mean he's in the first one, he argued that Carano was losing her job essentially for embracing standard issue Republican beliefs. And it is a challenge when something that is a standard issue belief among, you know, half the country is crazy. 
Um, you know, if you yeah. are going to run around like casting doubt on the outcome of the election, like, do you either say like that's something that is, you know, crazy and mendacious and not supported by the evidence? Or do you say, well, half the country believes it, so that has to be included in the discourse? Um, and I think Hollywood is sort of uniquely bad at determining what shape the discourse could take, because both because it sort of litigates these things on an extremely case-by-case -case basis in a way that makes it sort of unclear what the full spectrum of opinion is, and also just because there are different rules for different people. But I mean, I think that Carano poses because the conservative beliefs that she has expressed are a mix of like, hey, lockdown should be less serious. You know, we should be able to go visit people in the hospital. Um, and like some, you know, new order Illuminati, like the election was stolen nonsense. Um, it's hard. I mean, we got to make a decision about whether the crazy stuff is going to be allowed to be mainstream stream because a lot of people believe it or if we're going to say that half the country has beliefs that are beyond the pale and i don't think corporations are particularly well suited to make that determination um not that they shouldn't try to do it not that they won't but they're not very good at it i mean uh, I, I thought that the strongest point in uh Chait's piece uh the especially the, the the second one was just that it is generally again it's you know, it, it's complicated it, um, and it's hard to sort of sum up all of this in a, in a tweet length phrase, right? Twitter's bad at expressing nuance, but um, in general, it's a mistake to treat uh, Hollywood performers in particular, and I would say actors even more so than directors and writers. It's a mistake to treat them like politicians and sort of to expect them to live up to the kinds of standards that we would um, that we would want for uh, political discourse to come from our representatives. And, you know, it's it's just true that there are there are Republican representatives uh, right now who are saying stuff, who are tweeting stuff that is just much worse than like Carano. Right. And obviously they're elected and it's legitimate. And I'm not saying that. But, um, you know, uh, it's we we've we've sort of fallen into this weird space where, again, it's not every actor. It's not every conservative actor. It's not that you can't be conservative in Hollywood, period. There are certainly people on the right who work in Hollywood um, and who have who have successful careers there. Uh, but we've, we have kind of fallen into this weird place where there's an expectation at times, selective, right, that actors who are not even in many cases sort of the authors of the of the work or, or their characters, right? They're just sort of the people saying the lines are expected to have like these really kind of re relatively sophisticated understandings of American politics and symbology. And again, that's not to say that I agree in any way with the stuff that Carano's posting, um, you know, or at least with a, a bunch of the stuff that I have seen, though it's also just like, um, it's also just sort of weird that you've got, you know, sort of that you've got trade press um, reporting on this in a way that's like they're just sort of rolling out. Some of the stuff is more obviously offensive and some of the stuff is like not really in any way all that weird. And it's just sort of like the trade press reporting on this is like, well, and she did this and she did this and she did this. And it just totally collapses the stuff that is uh, genuinely controversial or, you know, potentially offensive with stuff that is just like sort of 
bog standard right of center kind of contemporary politics in 2021. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the other thing that um, comes up in this, uh, especially uh, Jonathan Chait found himself in a little bit of trouble on Twitter the other day because he compared what happened to her to the blacklist. And like, yeah. we, we can, we can talk about uh, what, what it actually means uh, to, to have a blacklist, right? Like the, the blacklist wasn't powerful because of HUAC. Um, it wasn't it wasn't really powerful because of the government. Exactly. It was powerful because private corporations said we will not hire people who believe these things and are on these lists. Right. That that was the real the real power of the blacklist. The ho- as for as much press as the Hollywood 10 got for going to prison for for not testifying in front of Congress. Um, you know, that that wasn't the real power of the blacklist. Uh, so, Peter, I guess I mean, my my, my point is, uh, you know, you are very much in in the people have a right to associate with whomever they want to associate with camp. Is the blacklist good? No, the blacklist wasn't good, man. I mean, is it's... is the blacklist? No, but I'm, I mean, but I'm and just for, saying, like, like, there were this is there was government influence there, right? The blacklist, sure, the, Total, the blacklist I, I, was I'm, did not, I'm not exist it was not, in it, right? No, I I know that you're not, but like the blacklist did not exist in a context that was just like a a. a complete private decision at all right it was intensely... it was large it was it was largely private though i mean this is pressure group pressure from groups like the american legion pressure from from other i mean uh you know what's his name uh uh the head of rko fired like half his staff he didn't he didn't have the government telling him to do that uh you know he 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 was just like i'm that I'm, but this goes back know. to the other thing that i was saying is like just because you have i, I yes i started by saying Organizations have a right to work with the performers that they want to work with and to fire them, right, for a variety of different reasons. At the same time, we shouldn't, and this is a broad guideline, right? It's hard to sort of, it's it's not a hard and fast rule that we apply to every single situation without thinking uh, about it. But as uh, at the same time, we also don't really want to be in a position of treating people, as Chait says, um, treating actors, treating private citizens who are not elected officials as if they have a responsibility to political discourse that is the same responsibility that we would ask, you sort of expect of um, of uh, someone elected to Congress. And it's, it's just, a, I think, a, a mistaken way of, uh, of, of looking at the responsibility that, that actors have. Yeah. I think at the same time, and we've discussed this before, um, the entertainment industry has really embraced the idea of political, you know, of saying that art is politically significant as a way to sort of ward off criticism of it and elevate it in importance. And, um, you know, has really sort of amplified the idea that stars should be, you know, sort of thoughtful and engaged on those questions, even when, you know, they aren't necessarily. And so... Like, yes, maybe we shouldn't expect people who don't do politics for a living to be thoughtful and tempered about it in public. Although what that says about sort of what we expect of the average American citizen is like maybe a little depressing to me. But it's also the case that the entertainment industry has very much embraced the idea of political engagement as a way to sell its product. Um, And so to a certain extent, you know, this is the industry protecting a strategic decision it's made to a certain extent. I mean, I also just can't under, I think we really should not underestimate the possibility that Corona was just like difficult and annoying in a way that made it tricky to market the show, right? I mean, 
you know, a good agent after um, a client has one of these blowups would sit their client down and be like, look, this is the list of things that will get you in trouble. Like, if you want to keep doing them, fine. But these are what, like, the likely consequences are supposed to be. Like, there has to be some An agent isn't going to say fine because uh, an agent stands to lose a considerable amount Obviously. of money if she but, like, doesn't get, you know, if she doesn't get her work. Although, good, I guess the agency yeah. here just dropped her, too. So, yeah. I mean, the... Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Alyssa. Can you, do you want to finish? Yeah, your but I think, like, it's in, you know, I... Yes, maybe this is about politics, but this also has the strong feel of people outside Hollywood applying a political valence to a decision that seems to me to be as much about sort of a very well-established brand having a sense of what it will and won't tolerate and a star who maybe sure didn't want to play that particular game. And, you know, it's possible that all of those things are happening simultaneously. And I just think it's worth acknowledging that rather than treating this as the rock on which a new order is going to be built. Sure. Uh, but I, I do think that there is a there there is a feeling certainly on the right that these sort of decisions only really break one way that the you know, people people were outraged about Gina Carano posting a comparison of uh, the treatment of Jews during the Holocaust to the treatment of Republicans right now, which, again, stupid, stupid comparison, idiotic. Um, but, you know, at the same time, her co-star Pedro Pascal, right, is tweeting out images of of uh, the child separations at the border and saying this is just like Germany in 1942, which like, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but that's that is just as offensive. Um, I, I find it I find it equally as offensive to suggest that the and I don't even I like I'm not even an immigration hawk. I don't even like I don't even want, you know, everybody's separated at the border and sent home. But like there, there's a difference between that and and the Holocaust um, and and the frustration on the right, I will say, as somebody who is at this point, very nominally affiliated with the right, uh, uh, is that these sort of decisions only really break one way. And I don't think that's I don't think that's unfair. I mean, I, and I also think, you know, look, this is an industry that has very different rules for very different people, right? Like that idiotic Kathy Griffin photo shoot from 2017, like she gets fired because, yeah, you shouldn't do anything that, you know, it is it is unwise and in poor taste to do stuff that seems to encourage violence against the president of the United States. But Kathy Griffin was also just eminently fireable, right? Like they're, that's sort of her whole shtick, my life on the D-list. She is a sort of inherently marginal figure. Um, and you know what? If Carano was already starring in Rangers of the New Republic and that show was going well, you know, maybe Disney would have made an effort to keep her. But um, yeah, there are there are different rules for people at different levels, right? Like Robert Downey Jr., um, you know, has been pretty outspoken in support of Mel Gibson, including after his DUI. And you know, gets paid a gajillion dollars by Marvel to be Iron Man because he's essentially unfireable. Like, the rules just vary. And I think it is a problem that Hollywood has become an arbiter of what speech is allowed, not necessarily because such arbitrations and conversations shouldn't happen. In fact, I think doing them in, like, a systemic and smart way rather than the sort of piecemeal way we do them is really important. But Hollywood is just always going to have different rules for different people, and there are going to be all of these little tipping points that make it really unuseful as, you know, a barometer for this kind of conversation. 
Uh, all right, so what do we think? Is Gina Carano, not any of the, the things around her, just the person, the entity, the whole shebang of Gina Carano, is Gina Carano a controversy or a non-troversy? Peter? Clearly a lot of people see her that way. <laughs> Alyssa? I mean, yeah, she's kind of controversial. Uh, yeah, she's obviously controversial, uh, and I will, I, I, I will be, I will be sad if all of this, uh, keeps us from having one of the few, like, really actually physically impressive, uh, female action stars on the screen. I mean, this is what everybody loved about her at the beginning in Haywire is the actual physicality she can bring to a role. Um, and that is a, that is a rare talent, uh, in, in Hollywood. And I, I will, I will miss it if it is no longer with us. Um, uh, if you enjoy the show and who does it, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.tothebulwark.com where we'll have a bonus members only episode talking about the greatest single artistic achievement in the history of the cinematic form. That's right. The trailer for the Snyder Cut of Justice League, which dropped to many, many cheers this weekend. Many people were saying how great it was. Uh, we live in a society, folks, and this is what that society hath wrought. Uh, and now on to the main event, Judas and the Black Messiah, written and directed by Shaka King. Judas and the Black Messiah follows the turbulent final months of Black Panther Fred Hampton's life uh, and his betrayal at the hands of FBI informant Bill O'Neill. Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, is in a is in the process of creating a rainbow coalition, a pan-racial group of lower-class Chicago citizens tired of a lack of social services and tired of abuse at the hands of the cops. Uh, he is the so-called Black Messiah, warned of in the film's early going by J. Edgar Hoover, played with cartoonish menace by Martin Sheen. Uh, Bill O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield, is this Messiah's uh, Judas. He is trading 30 pieces of silver for the head of the man whose spiritual power authorities fear. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is interesting as a sort of counter to the neutered history presented by Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, we see here the good and the bad of the Black Panthers, the effort to feed children, um, right alongside the assassination of cops. Uh, Kalua is solid as Hampton. He oozes charisma in one-on-one -on -one meetings uh, while speaking with a sort of machine gun staccato in his addresses from the pulpit. But I don't think the picture quite works, and it doesn't work because it's a tragedy that focuses too little on the tragic figure, Bill O'Neill. I found myself confused by O'Neill's motivations throughout, unclear of how deeply he believed in the Panthers' ideals and how much he was doing this for some cash on the side. Just one example, uh, there's a powerful moment following the death of one of their friends at the hands of the police in which O'Neill, vibrating with fury, brings C4 explosives to, explosives to Hampton, opens up the trunk of his car, C4's in the, in the trunk, and Hampton's like, you gotta go. Uh, O'Neill says, it's time to blow up City Hall. We gotta get some revenge. Hampton says, no, we can't do this. It's just gonna end in more bloodshed for our people. Uh, O'Neill curses him as a coward and flees, tears in his eyes. But then as he, he drives away, we see him pulling a wire from his chest, which suggests he was doing this to try and get uh, Hampton on tape saying something uh, incriminating. Except at this point in the film, uh, O'Neill has ghosted the FBI. He's turned his back on law enforcement because the cops have burned down the Black Panther's headquarters. Simply put, splitting the runtime between Hampton and O'Neill gives O'Neill short shrift, uh, and it moots the tragedy of his betrayal. I just, I just didn't feel it. Um, also, simply put, Kalua and Stan, Stanfield are, are, are a decade too old for these roles. As Angelica Jade Bastian noted in her review, Fred Hampton was just 21 when he died. Kalua turns 32 next week. Uh, O'Neill was 20 when Hampton was killed, he, and Stanfield is 29 now. There's something off about having grown men play act as teen revolutionaries. I think it, I think it weakens the, the indecision that we are supposed to feel uh, in them. Um, Peter, what did you make of Judas and the Black Messiah? 
I thought this was an impressive movie in many ways, but I also agree with you that it didn't quite come together. This is a movie with a bunch of great little sequences from that opening uh, bit, you know, following uh, someone walking down the street and getting in the car. And it's it's nicely directed um, in bits. And I feel like the bits never quite come together into a cohesive whole, in part because I think the Bastion review that you uh, uh, referenced there uh, says it just sort of doesn't have a theory of Fred Hampton in a in a real deep way. Um, and it it lacks a kind of you don't it lacks a theory of Fred, both Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill. And it just sort of like you come away from this not really understanding what exactly you're supposed to think about them as people rather than as towering historical symbols of some sort, but I'm not even sure what they're really symbols of, right? The Hampton is, Hampton is just such a non, I don't mean he's a non-presence, but he doesn't come, he doesn't feel like a person who lives off screen, even though he, of course, did live off screen. There's a real person here at the, at the heart of this character. You know, I always sort of judge the, judge the, the success of a character in a, uh, in a feature, whether it's based on a true story or not, as whether you can imagine that person doing doing most anything that isn't in the script easily, right? Whether you can imagine that person going to the grocery store, whether you can imagine that person, you know, um, interacting at the DMV or uh, watching a movie and talking about it or whatever afterwards. And I just found myself thinking, I have no idea what this Fred Hampton is like, but also even more weirdly, I have no idea what this Bill O'Neill is like. What are these people like outside of these nicely directed, nicely shot segments that we get in this movie? I, it just doesn't have an answer to that. And I think the movie just, it kind of fails its subjects because of that, because it just sort of, it doesn't even offer a, a bad theory. I think it just doesn't have one. Um, and that, for a movie like this, I think just doesn't quite work. That said, um, while I agree with you, uh, and, uh, and and Bastian about the miscasting of the two leads. I, I do think they do really nice jobs with roles that just sort of aren't there. And I don't think it's I don't think it's their fault. I think it's uh, a problem that sort of comes down to a script that just needed needed more development time. Yeah, uh, that that feels I, I that feels fair. I actually like both of them in this movie a great deal. I just think I did not think they were they, like. I, I, I'm sorry, Alyssa, I'll come to you in one sec. But I just remember at the end, there's a title card that says, uh, that says, you know, uh, Fred Hampton was 21 or 20 when he died, whatever whatever the age was. Uh, and I was like, wait, what? That, he's how old? He's he, uh, How old is he in this movie? Because he feels like, he just feels like a much older man. He's just played, and maybe he had that natural gravitas and that, and that, and, and it, it doesn't make that, it wouldn't make that much of a difference, but it, it just feels, it just, I just was shocked by that. Alyssa, I'm sorry. What did you make of Judas and the Black Messiah? It's interesting. I, I struggled with this some in part because um, I find Fred Hampton, the real human being, really interesting um, and was very excited for a movie that focused on him. Um, we, we actually didn't discuss the fact that he, shows up briefly in um, The Trial of Chicago 7, yep. too. Um, you know, sort of acting as an advisor to Bobby Seale's character who um, does not, who is trying to sort of sever his trial from the um, the other uh, folks who are on trial. Um, and Hampton, but more than that, um, I don't know if either of you have seen the documentary The Weather Underground. Um, but it devotes a fair amount of time to Hampton and to the coalition building work he was doing in Chicago. And why that 
coalition building was seen as so dangerous. I mean, this was actually, to an extent, a way in which Hampton was different from some of the Black Panthers in other cities. The idea of building this sort of pan-racial coalition um, and doing it really effectively. And his murder wasn't just tragic because it, um, you know, because Hampton, you know, was an important figure, but his, his murder really was an inflection point for a lot of radical groups in the 60s where people really lost hope um for working within the system within the system in any way um you know the sense that the kind of coalition that hampton was building was just not going to be allowed to emerge by the united states government and that um and a lot of people in the weather underground talk about how hampton's murder was this moment when the group decided to turn really fully to violence because they did not believe that the government was going to allow, you know, any sort of movement to have a significant impact on the state on the state of the United States. And um, I mean, I think, you know, it's sort of understandable that the um, Judas and the Black Messiah doesn't, you know, bring in those sort of white bourgeois radicals, that it doesn't spend more time in the Young Patriots, um, the group of sort of self-described rednecks that um, Hampton was organizing with. But as a result, it kind of cuts down his appeal and his importance. Um, And while Hoover's discussion of sort of the threat of the Black Messiah sounds like really cartoonish, um, there was this sense, both in sort of radical circles and in the FBI, that Hampton had the potential to be a figure sort of even more important and potentially destabilizing than Malcolm X or Martin Luther King because of that, because of the marriage of a really radical sensibility, like more so than King had embraced, and because of his ability to build the sort of coalitions that Malcolm X didn't live to build, um, even if he was trending that way sort of towards the end of his life before he was assassinated. And so the movie ends up, I think, accidentally shrinking Hampton and his context a little bit in a way that denies it some of the scope that it's aspiring to. In terms of O'Neill, I mean, I think part of the problem is that like he is a contradictory person, right? You know, you have that interview where he's talking about like, you know, what what would you tell your son you did? He was like, I was in the struggle. But he also is talking about, you know, FBI agent Mitchell is this sort of important figure in his life. And then it commits suicide. And not everybody needs to be resolved, right? Like people can be contradictory and fickle and weird. But I think you're right, Peter, that the movie doesn't really have a theory of O'Neill that it can sort out of these contradictory impulses. Um, In part because he, you know, he just kind of emerges without connections, right? You first meet him when he is, um, you know, stealing this car and by impersonating an fbi, FBI agent, agent right which, which is, is which very is, funny which is funny and potentially like a character revealing little touch that the movie just sort of leaves there and it, yeah i mean and it does so the movie does so much of that like the whole the rainbow coalition is just uh, section could have been in some ways the whole movie it's it it is um it is one of the most interesting things about hampton right and it's just sort of like, well, this happened. And then it moves on. And like, it doesn't really sort of carry weight. No. It doesn't add to your, I will, I, I will to say your understanding movie, in a real way. It's just like, that happened. I, I will say that King does a good job of uh, having that coalition show up in, uh, in, in, in places where you wouldn't necessarily expect it to. Like the, uh, the um, 
a, a funeral for their friend. You know, the, the, you see you see the white the white guys like kind of like awkwardly mixing in with the the other the 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 black groups, and it's like it. it there are little nice touches like that throughout the film. I, I do think he does a good job of showing and not telling there. I mean, I I like when I say that Martin Sheen plays uh, a kind of a cartoonish. J. Edgar Hoover, it, it it has more to do with Martin Sheen, I think, than J. Edgar Hoover. I, I don't have a problem with having the FBI as the big bad here. They like that that is the government figure that is tempting Judas, right? That is like you need you need to have that that there. I just I, I, I just thought that the actual portrayal was not was not particularly good or compelling. Um I don't know. I like again, I like this movie much more than the Trial of Chicago Seven in in very specific ways. I think it's doing more interesting things, um, but it but it also like does not work as well as that movie. And perhaps that's just because you know Aaron Sorkin was less interested in the history and more interested in telling a uh, the story, telling the story he wanted to tell. I mean, Aaron Sorkin has a more cohesive theory of the Trial of the Chicago Seven. It just happens to be a very wrong theory. Yeah, right? it's just wrong. It's, it's, it's just... like he wanted to use that as an opportunity to like hash out contemporary debates about democratic coalition politics when that's not at all what that was about. On the other hand, he managed to like transform that history into something that I think was a pretty compelling movie, just a one that didn't really have much to do with the history. This one is in some ways better with the history, but just doesn't have doesn't have the kind of I just I I left first of all I I found it 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 didn't grab me like after the beginning like it sort of kept coming out of the movie because I kept coming sort of wondering why am I here rather than somewhere else but after it I just watched and I was like what was I supposed to take away from that I don't think I know the answer except I mean that the government unjustly murdered someone bad, which bad to kill civil yeah, rights figures don't do that guys bad don't do that government. You know, we were talking about the trial of the Chicago 7, and I will say for all of this movie's flaws, it sort of unintentionally says some more interesting things about the debates that are going on today. Like the scene where we meet Hampton, where, you know, he's at this college, you know, you think the students over there are going to be free now? Oh, they'll let you change the name of your college, your own name, throw on a dashiki, because guess what? They're still going to drag your black ass off to Vietnam to shoot a poor rice farmer, right? It's like he, you know, there's this interesting engagement with the kind of representational politics that are very popular today. Yeah. Um, and then you have, I mean, I think the movie, we haven't talked about her performance yet, but Hampton is sort of at his most human in these scenes with Deborah, played by Dominique Fishback, who I think is great um, and was great in The Deuce, if either of you watched that. Um, but where she sort of pushes back and it's like, you know, these images and like this language matter. People get a certain amount of pride from that. Like there is a sort of give and take there. Um, and I think, you know, I think the movie sort of ultimately f fails Hampton just by making him neither both not human enough and not as sort of monumentally important as he actually was even if he hasn't gotten credit for it and that's actually a tension that you know we talk about tension being sort of unresolved with o'neill but that's a tension that's not exploited with hampton in a way that i think would have been really interesting i think fishback's a star and i'd like to see a entire program built around her um i i think she was good in the scenes that she got but didn't get enough to do here. I would have cut that whole subplot. Honestly, I would, I like, I, this is, I, I would, I, I don't know. I mean, this is a weird thing where it's like, you're, you're looking at the movie that 
you kind of wish it was instead of the movie that it was. But when I look at a movie that I wish it was, I, I almost want Hampton to be like a peripheral figure who like shows up and inspires people and or like deflates them or like he comes in occasionally and has a big impact. And, and all of that is working on O'Neill's psyche. Because again, I think O'Neill is... It, he has to be the main character here. He is he he is the tragic figure. The tragic figure in the tragedy has to be the main figure. And like, uh, I don't know. I it just it just there's there's so much about this that is good and so much about it that is like slightly frustrating and, and just doesn't work as storytelling for me. You know, the other thing, Peter, you mentioned like watching it and being taken out of it and being kind of like, why am I here? I feel like this is a movie that would have played much much better on in a theater. Um, where I'm like, where I do not have a cell phone bothering me. I do not have, you know, children waking up and, and, and coming into the room, you know, like, I really feel like this is a movie that would benefit greatly from having 130 minutes of completely undivided attention focused on the screen. Um, and it, and it is, this is playing in theaters now if your theaters are open, so you can go see it that way if you want, but most people are going to see it on HBO Max. Yeah, I think that's probably right, though. Watching it in a theater might just sort of reveal the ways that this that the the story is just kind of fragmented, um, you know. And again, I, I guess I've been somewhat um, somewhat harsh on the story production. I, I should go back to the first thing I said though, and just say uh, it is a really stylish movie, um, and it's the kind of movie that even though I'm like I'm quite critical here in a lot of ways. I think it's really quite well made and I would be very excited to see something else by Shaka King again. Like if this is not one of these where I'm like, this movie just sort of showed no talent to the filmmaker, the opposite. This movie showed an awful lot of talent, but I think it's hard to put together a story like period. And it's especially hard when you're trying to do justice to a real life story. Uh, we see this in the world of journalism and magazine feature writing all the time. You only have so much space. You have to make a lot of decisions about what to include and what to cut. There's a huge amount of material here. Um, I think it sort of didn't come together in the end, but there's a lot of talent um, and a lot of uh, really nice craftsmanship. Um, so what, in this what film. we're saying is what we actually want is a Judas and the Black Messiah miniseries. Basically. I mean, no, I like I was just thinking that like this, this is a, the sort of thing that works better as a six hour yeah. miniseries or, you know, a, a 10 hour miniseries. I, like, I think you could make a whole a whole a whole thing about this. And Alyssa, I think you're totally right. The most interesting thing about this movie, uh, just on a storytelling level, is the the kind of class versus race disputes that that come up throughout it. And I like I I would watch I would happily watch a whole show about that because I think it's it is the central tension of our time, certainly uh uh in in some of our more raucous uh debates. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Judas and the Black Messiah? Alyssa? Uh, qualified thumbs up. Peter? Thumbs down. Sadly, uh, thumbs down for me as well. I just it didn't did not quite work. Uh, all right. That is it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, please make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode about, uh, about the Snyder Cut, which is, again, the most important artistic achievement of our time. Um, and uh, make sure... Uh, to tell your friends about the show, uh, a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences, and if we don't grow, we'll die. If you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter, at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys again next week. <laughs>